It's Wednesday, August 22nd, and this is The Daily Dive. Huge news impacting the Trump administration and the Mueller investigation as two of the president's men went down in a single day. First, Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for the news that former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort has been found guilty on eight of 18 charges of fraud. We'll also talk about what the bigger picture is for the Mueller investigation. Next, President Trump's longtime personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, has pled guilty to eight counts of tax and bank fraud, and also campaign finance violations. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for more, including the news that Cohen said that at the direction of Trump, he arranged to make hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Finally, another update in the case against the Golden State Killer. We now know where he will be tried in court, Sacramento. The district attorney from the six counties in California where Joseph James D'Angelo committed his crimes agreed to coordinate and prosecute him in California's capital. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, joins us for the latest, including 13 new charges laid out against the Golden State Killer. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nothing to do with Russian collusion. This started as Russian collusion. This has absolutely nothing to do. This is a witch hunt and it's a disgrace. I feel very badly for Paul Manafort. Again, he worked for Bob Dole. He worked for Ronald Reagan. He worked for many, many people. And uh, this is the way it ends up. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So I was watching cable news and the anchors are, are speaking. They're getting ready to deliver news about Paul Manafort and they're showing live shots of the courtroom. And all of a sudden you see, I'm assuming they're either interns or other type of reporters, something just mad dash running outside to deliver the news of all the counts that Paul Manafort was guilty of. What happened in the courtroom today, Ginger? I, along with the interns, got a little bit of a workout running out of the courtroom to a payphone in the courthouse oh, wow. to let the world know that the judge had declared a mistrial on 10 of the 18 charges after the jury informed him that they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict and that they had been deadlocked on those charges and then guilty verdicts on the remaining eight. The best to think of the charges that Manafort was accused of as falling into three buckets. One, a series of not filing proper tax returns. A second, of a series of years of not filing proper foreign business reports. And third, a series of accusations of bank fraud that had to do with some loans. He was found guilty of at least one charge in every bucket, including two charges of bank fraud that each carry a maximum sentence of 30 years in federal prison. So these are some pretty hefty crimes that he was convicted of today. Yeah, those are the main ones right there. I mean, he's 69 years old, I think it is. You know, that has the potential for the rest of his life to be in prison if he gets the maximum sentence there. What were the counts that they did not reach a verdict on, the ones that were declared a mistrial? These were the same kind of charges for the most part. He was found guilty on all of the income tax fraud charges, but not found guilty on all all of the foreign reports or all of the bank fraud. There was a number of 
conspiracy to commit bank fraud charges that he was not convicted on. And all of those, the jury reported they were deadlocked. And the judge has given the prosecutor the option to come back by the end of the month and decide whether or not they want to retry Paul Manafort on all of those charges. But suffice it to say, even the eight guilty verdicts that they got could come with what would effectively be a, a life sentence for Paul Manafort. Right. They might just be happy with that and say, forget it on the rest of the stuff. It was weird because the jurors had even uh, posed a question to the judge saying, what if we can't come to a consensus on one of the charges? And, and the media was reporting it. The jurors are deadlocked on one of the charges only and come to find out it's actually 10. So they were pretty split along a lot of these charges. We all read that note from the jury that came at about 11 o'clock to mean that it was deadlocked on a single charge. And there was one of the conspiracy to commit bank fraud charges. And all the reporters in the room thought that must be what they were stuck on. That's the one outlier. And that's the one single charge that, that would make sense that they could be stuck on that one, but not the other 17 charges. And so there was a lot of surprise in the courtroom. I was there sitting uh, on the bench when the judge read that they were, in fact, locked on 10 of the 18 charges and not one. The defense didn't, uh, they rested without presenting any witnesses or evidence. What was the reaction from uh, Paul Manafort or his attorney? He didn't appear to have any emotional response. His attorney afterwards said that he had been given a fair trial and that they were going to explore their options. They have the right to file appeals to try to get these convictions overturned. And it's important to remember that the charges against Manafort were divided between two different districts. His attorneys fought an effort to combine the two trials, and he now is expected to stand trial a second time in just a month for additional charges in the district court in Washington, D.C. And that might even lead prosecutors to not want to pursue those 10 mistrial counts anyways because of the upcoming trial again. What about the jurors? The judge had some uh, asked them if they wanted to remain secret and they most of them had said or all of them had said yes i guess that's right the judges said that their names will remain secret for at least the time being he did not give a deadline in which he would release those names the jurors indicated that they would like to remain secret the judges said repeatedly that he was the subject of death threats he was very concerned that if the jurors names were known publicly they too would be the subject of death threats but he did give them an out he told them that if later in future days they decide they they want to speak publicly. They want to identify themselves. They are allowed to do so. Let's talk about this in broader terms, because the Mueller probe by the president, a lot of Republicans has been labeled this witch hunt. But two of the president's men went down. Paul Manafort, obviously, we're talking about and Michael Cohen also pleading guilty to eight counts. A lot of the same type of things and including campaign finance violations, which was the main one. He said he was directed by the president to offer hush money to uh, Stormy Daniels and, and Karen McDougal, even though the these things aren't related to Russian meddling per se. Two guys that were part of the inner circle have gone down as a result of this Mueller probe. It was not a good day for the president to have his former campaign manager found guilty on a variety of charges and then to have as a personal attorney not only plead guilty to a number of charges, but actually say in court that he had committed a crime at the direction of the president, that he was doing so because the president, then candidate Trump, told him to do so. This is going to be a tough one for the president. It will stoke 
his critics that he has surrounded himself by people who are willing to commit crimes. And it's likely to get his opponents really riled up, especially as we're looking at only months to the midterm elections in November. I can't wait to see what his reaction is going to be. It's been proven almost now with these guilty verdicts and the uh, pleads of guilty from uh, Michael Cohen. The president has worked with crooks. He's worked with people guilty of corruption. They're in his circle. You know, he hires these people. It's going back to the early days of the campaign. They, people were always questioning his judgment and things like that. And it's bearing true. So it's, it's, it's a difficult position the president is in right now. He liked to say on the campaign trail that he only hired the best people. He is now going to have to deal with the fact that two of the people he has hired, some of the closest jobs to him before he got into the White House, are guilty of crimes that include fraud, deception, fraud against the government, campaign finance violations from his campaign. I mean, those are some serious crimes and people that are very close to him. And for that reason, expect to see his critics really stoked, really critical of him in the coming weeks and trying to build upon these verdicts in a way that is politically advantageous to them. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. These are very serious charges and reflect a pattern of lies and dishonesty over an extended period of time. Mr. Cohen decided that he was above the law and for that he was going to pay a very, very serious price. Joining us now is Daniel Littman, author of the Politico Playbook. What a change for the president's longtime lawyer known as his fixer. He said he once would take a bullet for the president. He pleaded guilty in court to a range of things, including campaign finance violations related to payments made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. And he said that the president instructed him to do it. What do we know? We've been learning about the story since right before it broke in the 2016 election. And every day, it seems like we get a new piece of evidence. And I think the question is, does this increase uh, Trump's likelihood of getting indicted. The fact that Cohen did this at his direction, at Trump's direction, means that Trump might be in legal hot water. And it's never good when you have a president who could face trial or at least impeachment next year if Democrats take control. This will be a a tool in the arsenal of Democrats as they run in November in the midterms and if they take back control of the House. As we know, the president has denied saying he knew anything about it, although they did find out that he did reimburse Michael Cohen for the hush money paid out. What did Michael Cohen say exactly about that, about being instructed by the president? He did say that he knew what he was doing was wrong and that he said over the last few months that he wanted to avoid a situation where he can't see his family, his young kid, because of the crimes he did while working for the president. And when you're working for someone like Trump, who has a messy personal life, it's not a surprise that Cohen was at the center of this and was doing things that are illegal. And I think this verdicts in the Manafort trial and Cohen pleading guilty kind of reminds people that no one is above the law, that even if you're the personal lawyer of the president and you're a lawyer, you you swore an oath to not do these types of things, you know better that people will be held accountable. So it's trying to be a deterrent factor as well as punishment for someone like Cohen. You know, he used to say he'd take a bullet for Trump, but now he wants to basically lay out what he knows. And we're still kind of getting details about what any cooperation he does want to give to Mueller and also the Southern District of New York. What else did he plead guilty to? 
a campaign finance violation. It was tax fraud. He misstated his income, so he owed a lot of money that he should have paid. And so the government is going to try to get that money back. But he's facing a number of months in jail. This is not just a slap on the wrist. Michael Flynn, what he did seems to be on a scale order of less. So I think it'll be interesting to see all of these people on the same jail cell. We're not going to see that, of course, but it's an amazing situation when you have a number of senior former Trump officials going to jail because of the work they did for Trump or the stuff they did in their prior careers. Right. I think as a part of this agreement, he said he wouldn't challenge any type of sentence from 46 to 63 months. So he could be possibly in there for about five years if things keep going the way they do. You can just imagine what's going through his head that he got to the center of power but he flew too close to the sun, things have consequences. And so if you do something bad, you will be caught. And he is probably thinking twice about whether he should have worked for Trump for his career or if he should have stayed more as a humble lawyer who didn't cross ethical boundaries. But in a lot of people, they find that power is intoxicating. And this guy got to the center of things and worked for a top businessman who later became president. But that can have serious criminal consequences if you don't play your cards right. There was nothing indicating that he would have to cooperate with the special counsel further, right? In other words, he's not necessarily flipping on the president. I mean, he didn't name him and say that he followed his direction to pay the hush money for these two porn stars. But nothing that indicates he's going to be cooperating with the special counsel. No, but the... Special counsel might have charges against Cohen, or if he cooperates with Mueller, then that is a good mark for him when sentencing comes around. And so when the special counsel comes up to him and says, hey, like, what information can you give us? He might be much more likely to talk now that he has his deal and he knows he's not going to get 20 years in prison. It's such an interesting day. Two of the president's men go down within hours of each other and eight counts each, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Some of the same charges. Daniel Lippman, author of The Political Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The location and complexity, the likelihood of evidence associated with the charges, where the offenses occurred, the rights of the defendant and the people, the convenience of or the hardship to the various victims and witnesses, those people who were likely to appear on the case, all of these things have uh, factored in. So as a group, we've determined that the trial should take place in Sacramento. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. So we finally are finding out some more details in the Golden State Killer case. We know now where he will be tried. District attorneys from six different counties where Joseph James D'Angelo is accused of committing all these crimes got together and announced it. Where is he going to be tried? They're going to try him up in Sacramento County, where he lived and where he was arrested in April. They have determined that there were so many crimes there and in Northern California in general that it would just be easier for everyone involved to do a joint prosecution in Sacramento that includes all six of the counties that have charges filed against him. And we also found out some new charges against him, too. He's already been charged with 13 murders, but there's some new and kind of creative ways they're charging him. They're being very aggressive in what they're doing with him. 
He was accused of about 50 sexual assault as the East Area Rapist in the Sacramento area. And today they filed 13 counts against him that are related to sexual assault cases from the 1970s, nine of them in Sacramento, four of them in Contra Costa County. But they didn't charge him with rape. They charged him with kidnap for robbery. And the reason they did that is because the statute of limitations on rape cases ran out long ago. But there's no statute on this particular charge. And so the allegation is that he moved the victims at knife point or gun point as part of a kidnap for robbery that led to the sexual assaults. The uh, use of a knife or gun also adds extra time to a possible sentence, or it's kind of a special charge as well, right? Right. And in addition, 10 of the 13 murder charges have special circumstances attached to them. And so that could conceivably lead to prosecutors seeking the death penalty, although they made clear today that they have not decided what to do about that. DNA is at the center of a lot of this case. It's how he was caught, how they connected all the dots. One of the reasons why they initially said that it might be held in Southern California, the trial, was because that's where a lot of the DNA evidence was. Some of the crimes in Northern California, there's no DNA associated with it. I mean, is that going to be a problem? They say it won't be a problem. Initially, they were thinking that they would try it down south because there is DNA from several of the murders in the Southern counties that can tie him to these cases, they say. But there's also some DNA out of Contra Costa County. Two of the four kidnap for robbery charges have DNA evidence. None of the kidnap for robbery charges in Sacramento do, and the two murders in Sacramento don't have DNA evidence either. But the district attorney, Emory Schubert, made it plain that they think they can convict him. They don't file charges unless they're convinced that they can do it. Is there a lead of any of the DAs? DA Tony Rakakis down in Orange County kicked off the meeting and the announcement, but is there a lead? Is it Marianne Schubert? Not really. They're all working together. It's, it's Anne-Marie Schubert in Sacramento, whose office is one of the bigger ones in the state, and that's another reason that they're moving it there. But they're all working together. There's no one person in charge. Has there been any mention of the death penalty or possible sentences? I know it's very, very early, but, you know, he's an old man already. If you talk to these prosecutors, they'll tell you openly they don't know if this case will ever get to trial. It's really up to the defense and what their next move is, whether they pursue a delay or change of venue to go somewhere else. They just have no way of knowing. The death penalty aspect of it will require each of the offices that has murder cases to sit down and follow their process for deciding whether the individual deserves it in their mind, whether there are mitigating circumstances, what kind of life they live. But it's hard to imagine that someone who's faced with 13 murder charges isn't going to end up looking at the death penalty. When do we expect this to possibly, as you said, if ever, go to trial? I mean, I would assume it'd take a long time to get everybody together on the same page to... They want to move rapidly, but there's just no way to know what that means. He's got a court appearance Thursday at which he will be arraigned on these new charges, the 26 counts that were filed today in Sacramento. But remember, he was arrested in April and he hasn't even entered a plea yet. So this could literally go on for years and years. Yeah, I mean, it was just last week that we spoke to you and we got the 13th murder charge for Claude Snelling. So, yeah, things are moving fast in some respects and moving very slow in others. He's known as the East Area Rapist there. Obviously, you work for the Sacramento Bee. What's the sense of the community out there now that we know that he's caught and, and how this case is progressing so far? Well, there's palpable relief. Sacramento was literally 
terrorized by these crimes. And I know it was decades ago before I got there. But when you talk to people who live there, including the DA, Anne-Marie Schubert at the time, they have a hard time expressing just how fearful people were. And so there's tremendous relief. And when you go to these court hearings that D'Angelo appears at, a lot of the victims and the victims' families will travel long distances just to be there to see him. They want their day in court. They want to look him in the eye. He's a boogeyman, really. You know, even though he's caught now and it happened years and years ago, the memories of those things always live on. We'll keep following up as the case against the Golden State Killer progresses. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.